Hopefully your Bible at the top of this section, right underneath the word Psalm 3, hopefully your Bible has a little heading that says something like this. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars, uh, inform us that those titles that are over many of the Psalms are part of the original text. So Bible scholars regard them as inspired or as true as well. So think of that when you are going through uh, your Bible reading and you see these little um, titles. Recognize that um, believers throughout the centuries have regarded them as the very word of God as well, that it's not uh, just like the chapter numbers. Now, the Psalms, those chapter numbers are original, but for the rest of the Bible, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not original. They were added in the 15 or 1600s by a guy who was riding on a horse. But these um, headings underneath of Psalm 3 or 2 or 1, those are, as far as we know, original. They're very, very old and have been regarded as uh, the Word of God and part of uh, at times, even part of the versification of the text, where they will uh, different uh, traditions will include them in verse one, um, but our Bibles typically make it uh, prior to verse one. So we have the context being a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Another word of note before we go further into the Psalms, we should pause and address the genre. Genre. So not just the. Psalms being poetry, which they are, but a specific type of poetry found in the Bible that is perhaps less prominent in our minds in the 21st century. And that is not that it's just a psalm or a poem, but that it is a psalm of lament, a psalm of lament. In a psalm of lament, the author, often David, expresses a complaint to God. This complaint is then followed by an expression of trust in God. And then a request follows that trust in God and then often concludes with praise. So if you are taking notes and you want to get all five of those written down, um, number one, address or to God, address to God. Number two, complaint. Number three, expression of trust. Number four, request. Number five, praise. So that's address, complaint, trust, request, Praise. That is the typical pattern for a lament. And this follows that pattern as well, but my message is not in five points, but in four. Now, every good story has a backstory. Sometimes that backstory is the entire story. For example, a movie uh, that starts with an opening scene that takes place at a later point in the figure's life, and then spends the rest of the hour panning back and then walking forward to that final scene. Maybe that story gives a bit of narration, then says, but first we must consider how we got here. Then jumps back to the person's childhood and spends the next hour walking through a series of events that leads to that conclusion which it began with. So in today's message, there is a backstory which we've addressed. It is the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Today's text has a backstory, and so it is with you. You also have a backstory. We all have a backstory. We're all walking into this room with some sort of background. Now, for our text today, uh, to find some of that backstory, we need to, or it's helpful, to flip over to 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, you might want to flip over there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Specifically, this chapter is God's judgment on David's sin with Bathsheba. I'll read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Read about 10 or 12 verses. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and another poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank with him his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. 
But he took that poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold from this lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin that you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. That's the backstory. That's the background. David's sin with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan confronts him. And then there's this judgment pronounced upon him. The sword will not depart from your house. There will be much violence. There will be much adversity upon you and your house. So next, we skip for more of the backstory. You could read each of these chapters, but this is, uh, that, that would take a long time. So we're going to skip up to chapter 15. Chapter 15, because we're going to read a couple, couple chapters here. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. They went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all of his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to 
Natai, the Gittite, why are you also going from us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go? I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth will be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant shall be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. And Ittai the Gittite and all of his men and all the little ones who were with them crossed over. And the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over towards the way of the wilderness. There uh, there was Zadok also, and all of the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, when he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ithavel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. I think we're going to pause there. So the backstory is Absalom's rebellion. We just read Absalom's rebellion. He turned the hearts of the men of Israel against King David. Absalom is a son of David. So he has this rebellion against his own father, turns the the city, turns the nation against his dad. And his dad, King David, has to flee for his life and taking as many as he can with him, uh, though some are sent back as spies to try to um, save the kingdom. So this is a very difficult, very tumultuous time in King David's life. Uh, perhaps the most difficult, perhaps the most heartbreaking, because it's, it's one thing to, to be facing Goliath. It's one thing to be facing this giant, this evil Philistine that is outside of your household. But it is a completely different thing to have this enemy within your household. It is a completely different thing to have that be your own relative but it's even worse when it's your immediate family, such as your son. So point number one, verses one and two, I have many foes. I have many foes. Our text says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. David's enemies have increased. They've grown. They've expanded. There's more and more trouble coming. Our text in today's message begins immediately with David's rebellious son, Absalom. This devastating heartbreak of having his own son turn against him. By the way, there we go, Uh, points for these. But there's also other enemies too. It's not just Absalom. So I just did a quick uh, search to see uh, who were King David's enemies. Well, 
Uh, can you tell me some of King David's enemies? Saul. Okay, that's, that's good. Thank you. Uh, give me some more. It gets harder at the, the longer you wait. So uh, the Amalekites, those are on my list. The Philistines. The general. What's his name? Was that Joab? Joab kind of turned out to be a scoundrel. Um, who else? Goliath. Who else do we have? How about those ones that all end with the word ites? Like nations and groups and the tribes. The Hittites. The Hittites are a good one. I didn't have that on my list. The Moabites. I got some more. I have like eight listed. So this is Sunday school at church time. What'd you say? The Jezebites? I don't think that's a thing. That's like combining Jezebel with the nation. But that would be terrifying. Um, yeah, if I remember right, Jezebel was a, was a Philistine, I think. So we've mentioned the Philistines. By the way, the Philistines were so... Uh, the Philistines were so evil. If you, I don't know if you remember this or remember me talking about it in a sermon, but uh, Goliath is is the possession of the Philistines, but he's not actually uh, of the Philistines. Like, that's not his tribal group. What is his tribal group? Well, his, his background is he is a Nephilim, and he is, so he's a giant, and um, the Philistines are so bad and so evil that they conquered giants, and force them to be slaves of war for them. So the Philistines are actually worse than Goliath because Goliath is like a hired soldier for them, except he's a slave. Like he's, a, he's one they captured, and then they captured his siblings, and then these are some of their warriors that they have uh, forced them to fight on their behalf. So the Philistines are even worse. Philistines are really, really bad. The Philistines are also uh, kind of pirate-type figures. They're sea people who live uh, off in the Mediterranean Sea and then have come in and taken over some land in today, what we call the Gaza Strip, and now have given birth to the people group called the Palestinians. The Philistines and Palestinians have the same origin. They are, like, the, the, the line from them to the modern day is the same as, uh, let's say, uh, early colonialists coming to America, and now you are 10 times uh, descendant of people from the Mayflower. That is the lineage there. Um, Some other names that I have on my list are the Moabites and the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Hamathites, and the Rehobites, and others. So David has many enemies. And each of these ones that end with the word ites, like that's a tribe or that's a group of people uh, of which they're all enemies. They're all sworn enemies of Israel and King David, and they would kill him if they could. So when he says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me, he's not joking. This is not a metaphor. David has many foes. Now, it's not just David who has many foes, but the Christian also faces many enemies in this life. The Bible outlines them for us in this very simple way. So if you were taking notes, you might want to write this down. This is not going to be rocket science or anything new for hopefully most of you. But the Christian has three enemies, and it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these are just broad terms, big buckets that you can put things in to, to organize the society as you see it. The Christian's threefold enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world first is the world system apart from God or opposed to God and those who participate in it and promote it. So it's not just an idea, but it's also the people who promote those ideas. The world is Christian's first enemy. Secondly, the flesh. The flesh is the inner self with its desires which are contrary to the will and word of God. This unredeemed, sinful self. This part of you that's sort of like the the messed up wheel on the shopping cart when you're walking through Trader Joe's and the cart just keeps on going off to the left. That's the flesh. Where it's just constantly pulling pulling you off to the side. The Christian will battle with the flesh throughout their life. While the world is external, the flesh is internal. 
And then the third category is the devil. When we say the devil, um, sure, we mean the devil proper, but we also mean the devil and his angels, his demons, which there are many. You say, well, how many? Well, I don't know, but there's a whole bunch. Because we know that there is some ratio of good to evil uh, angels and that a lot of people think there's about one-third uh, the number of evil angels as there are good angels. And we know that certain occasions, such as uh, Jesus' birth, when Jesus' birth is being announced by the angels, the angels up in the sky are described with a number that is uh, myriads and myriads, or, or thousands and thousands, a multiplication so high that you can't count it. Then we also see in the book of Revelation the same type of, of use of numbers to indicate that this is... This is a crowd of angels that is more vast than the crowd of the redeemed, even. So just imagine that there's roughly 7 billion people. I would suppose that there are more than 7 billion angels, and of those 7 billion angels, uh, approximately, or or more than 7 billion angels, a a, a third of them or more are evil, and then two-thirds of them are good. I'm not sure if any of that is accurate, but that's my speculation based on the evidence that I just explained to you. So the Christian has a threefold enemy. There is the world which is external to yourself and the flesh which is internal to yourself and the devil and his, his demons which uh, can kind of come and go at various times and ways and places. And there have been plenty of times where um, I have felt, and I'm sure many of you also have felt, uh, spiritual attack where you are sensing that you are being attacked but it is not coming from within you. It's not a a fleshly desire, but it is maybe an assault on your mind. Thoughts that you know, they're not from God. They're not from the Word of God. They're not from Scripture. They're also not from some kind of movie that you were watching yesterday. They just came upon you seemingly out of nowhere. And then that attack often coincides with some positive thing that's about to happen. For example, I've told a number of you uh, who are about to get baptized that, hey, you're getting baptized tomorrow. Don't be surprised if you are on the brink of backing out the night before. Why? Well, because you're afraid or your mind is filled with, with all kinds of ideas that are not rational. They're not from God. They're not from the word and they're not from you either. Don't be surprised when those things happen because they do happen and they happen uh, to most, if not all of us, at various times and ways. So the Christian has a threefold enemy. The world, which is outside of himself. The flesh, which is internal. And then the devil, which kind of comes upon them at different ways and times and seasons, depending on a variety of factors which we don't have time to get into. So point number one, I have many foes. Point number two, God is my defender. God is my defender. Verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. God is David's defender and his glory, even though he is losing his own I read, I read it for you, where David is fleeing Jerusalem. He's, he's running for his life. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his people. The ones who used to be loyal to him have turned against him. His own counselor has turned against him, and he's crying out to God, God, will you cause, what was it, Ahithophel? Would you cause my, my advisor, my counselor, my closest confidant, who's now turned against me, and now he is advising and consulting for my rebellious son who's trying to kill me. I pray that his counsel would turn Bad. Would it turn into a destructive counsel? So God is David's defender and glory, even though David is losing his own glory. I don't think that we really understand naturally what a king's glory is like because most of us are not kings. But imagine the nicest place you've ever been. I have to think for a second what the nicest place I've ever been is because I didn't put this illustration in my notes. But in preaching class, they tell you to have at least one illustration per point, and I don't know that I've really had too many so far. So um, I think of uh, Trump Tower. It's pretty nice. Uh, I might have been to nicer places, but that's a pretty nice place that would be uh, familiar to you. I've looked at some of the apartments in 
uh, in Trump Tower and on them online. And um, some of them are like pretty impressive. The, uh, the accents are made of gold. Uh, the wallpaper is some kind of a sparkly jewel type thing, sort of like this. Uh, where's my, my ring that I, who has my ring? My baseball ring. Does anyone have it? It's not in my pockets, so I don't know where it went. Uh, I think I was showing it to the guys this morning, and I'm not sure I got it back. Um, if you have it, please hold it up. Um, anyway, Jack or Alexis, do you have your ring handy? I, I, need you, I need you to hold this ring up, okay? This is important, very important. Oh, I just dropped it. It's heavy. All right, hold this, hold this ring, just hold it up in the air so people can see it. Now spin it around, okay? It's got, it's got a lot of sparklies on it. Imagine an entire wall like that. Now, not just a wall, but imagine an entire room. And unlike that ring, uh, it's not completely fake. Got those made at a factory in China for my baseball team as a reward for our championship, okay? They're, they're, they're nice, but they're not real. Now, there are luxurious apartments in this city that have things of real value on the walls, on the wallpaper. The light fixtures are made out of actually precious crystals. It's not just plastic. Now, imagine that, but um, not just uh, an apartment building that someone could purchase. Imagine it is the most wealthy, the most powerful, richest, highest status person in the entire world. Now, what are his uh, fixtures like? What are, what's the faucet like in his bathroom? It's even better. David's glory, his wealth, his status. I'm like really bothered by the fact that I lost my ring. Um, <laughs> his status is quite high. It is the highest of all possible people. And he's losing it. And he's losing it to his son. And now in our story today, he has already lost it. He has is, is fled for his life. He's run out of town. So he's lost his gravitas. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his status. He's on the run. But he says that God is his, not just his defender, but also his glory while he is losing his own glory. There are times when God allows us to suffer under the hands of extreme wickedness in order that we would lift our gaze and turn our hope for earthly, temporary glory to to look away from that earthly, temporary glory, sort of like uh, these not very real gemstones in rings where we're like, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to live for that. That's kind of how we function. But God wants us to lift our gaze from living for those things to live for eternal, unfading glory. That's not going to get lost like my ring, which I have misplaced. God allows us to suffer under the hands of extreme wickedness in order that we would lift our gaze and turn our hope for earthly temporary glory to eternal unfading glory. When Israel left Egypt and was wandering in the wilderness, chased by Pharaoh, suffering hunger, drought, and all sorts of affliction associated with desert life, the Lord led them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Do you know what that cloud was called? It was a glory cloud. This is in Numbers 14 and 16. You can look it up on your own if you want. The glory of God was put on display. And it led Israel through the wilderness, through the wilderness, out of slavery and into the promised land. Now, here's a fun thing. We're not doing this, but if you were to do a study on that, on the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, what you will find is that they didn't take the most direct route, not by a long shot. They actually have destinations that you could identify. You could go to those places today, and I did about 15 years ago, and they're just in the middle of nowhere. They're dry. It's a dry heat. It's really hot. There's nothing to see once you get there. You're like, oh, these are 70 palm trees. Well, none of those are the original palm trees. They're just wandering in the wilderness, and God brought them out here to, for, for his own purposes. But this is um, 
difficult. But what we see through all of that is that God led his children to the promised land through the wilderness by fixing their eyes on the glory of God. Our passage says that God is the one who lifts up my head. That is what happens when we look to him. Look back at our text, verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. What happens when you are um, not doing well? What happens when you are um, suffering or um, in sin or in a time of great problems? Well, what was David going through when he is running from Absalom? He, he is not having a parade. He is not walking with his head up and his chest out. He is not holding his shield like a victorious soldier. No, he is running for his life, undoubtedly ducking for cover as he is walking behind walls to make sure that he is not seen by the lookouts. What do people walk like when they are in deep darkness? Well, either they are very boastful or... A more likely scenario is that they are in shame. And that affects the way that they physically walk. Uh, We minister out front of uh, Planned Parenthood on Bleecker Street on Saturdays, and there was um, there's always these these women coming through to have these abortions to kill their kill their babies. And what do they do? Well, they put on masks that they don't need, they put on sunglasses. They hold a phone up to their ear, which is not actually on. They're not actually talking to anyone. They they hang their head in shame. They put their hood up, even if it's not cold. Why? Well, because they are ashamed of what they're doing. Even if nobody was there, they would still be doing that. Because their conscience is bearing witness that they are not doing good. When we are suffering, whether it is uh, suffering that is external to us, something that the world is causing, uh, afflicting us, or whether we are in sin through a choice or action of our own, or even when we are being attacked or persecuted by others or by a spiritual attack, we, we often will shift into this, um, our head down. Physically, we are, we are hanging our head. You can see a person. You can look at their face and tell whether they are doing well or not. I took more than a little bit of heat a couple weeks ago for my comment about uh, what some call RBF and um, facial expressions that are not in keeping with the joy of the Lord. But what I said was true. And if you are being honest, you will admit that what I said was true. That you cannot both at the same time have the joy of the Lord in your heart and in your mind and hatred for everyone and everything all around you that you are projecting as loud as you possibly can without saying a word. Communicating as strongly as you possibly can without saying a word by your facial expression. What God does, though, is he lifts up our head. He takes away that guilt and that shame, and he restores to us dignity. He restores to us joy. He restores our soul, which leads to a restoration of the gladness in our face. God is our defender. When he does this, he he is our glory. And when we recognize him as our defender and our glory, he, he lifts our gaze. He lifts our head that we can look to him, even if our circumstances haven't changed, even if Absalom is still doing an overthrow in the kingdom. It is essential that we interpret our circumstances through who God has proclaimed himself to be instead of interpreting God through our circumstances. God is a shield for David. God is David's glory. God is the one who lifts up his head. And he is these things for you if you are in Christ. Even if things, circumstances aren't so good. Even if they are terrible. Verse 4 says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. 
It is essential, as I just read, that we interpret our circumstances through who God has revealed himself to be instead of interpreting God through our circumstances. What we, what we know, if we have any integrity, we, we recognize that our perceptions fail. What we think of things is often inaccurate. Our memories fail. We misunderstand things. Our vision fails. Our memories are weak. We misremember things. But you know what doesn't fail? The Word of God. It doesn't change. It doesn't fail. And so while our emotions rise and fall, they come and go up and down with the seasons, with the weather, with the circumstances, with all sorts of things that we experience Our God is faithful and our God is unchanging. Our God is our defender. He is our glory. He is the one who lifts up our head. Moving forward, point three. God is my rest. God is my rest. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. God is David's rest. God is David's rest. He's running from Absalom. He is, he is no longer sleeping in his palace, in his uh, real nice uh, bed with the Egyptian cotton sheets or whatever a king makes his sheets out of. He is not sleeping in his climate-controlled room where he has it exactly at 68.5 temp- uh, degrees Fahrenheit. He is sleeping maybe in a tent, maybe just on the ground, maybe under a bush, maybe behind a rock, maybe in a cave. We know he sleeps in all of those places at different times. But he said that the Lord gives him sleep. God is his rest. God's grace provides all of the spiritual resources that we need by his word and spirit flowing through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace provides all the spiritual resources that we need by his word and spirit flowing through the grace that is in Christ Jesus or through the cross. That's, that's the way in which he gives out these resources, these blessings to us. But these benefits do not always stop with the spiritual. They are always spiritual, but they do not always stop with the spiritual. Sometimes, or in this text, David is thanking God for providing for him physically as well. In this case, we're talking about sleep. You might think, oh, that's not very spiritual. No, it's, 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 it's very important. You are not just a soul, but you are also a body. And your body is just as much part of you as your soul is part of you. It is very difficult to be doing very poorly physically, but also be doing well spiritually. It can be done, but it's hard. And sleep is one of these foundational things, these building blocks of a functioning person. And if you're not sleeping, you're probably not doing well. So in this text, David is thanking God for providing for him physically as well by providing rest. And we all know the experience of sleepless nights. Tossing and turning, our minds racing, our soul, our spirit in turmoil within us. Perhaps we're facing a painful decision or waiting for news that should have come by now. You're laying there in bed, refreshing your email, waiting to find out if you're keeping your job or not. And you're just like, ah. Or maybe you've received the bad news. The problem is you found out, and now your mind is racing with the implications. David is still in the middle of his son's violent overthrow attempt when he writes about this sleep, physical sleep. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Rest from God does not require a solution to the troubled circumstances. God makes peace, inner peace, 
readily available long before he brings an end to physical suffering. As bad as physical suffering is, and as important as it is to, be, to, to have relief from it, if it is possible, that's all important, and I'm not discounting that. You know, let's take that like hammer in your finger illustration. Like, oh, you hit your finger with the hammer, and now it hurts. You did it again, and now it hurts. Well, it would be great if you would stop that. Please stop that. If someone else is doing that to you, please stop that from happening. That is important that you stop that from happening. But while your, while your finger still hurts, God makes peace available. The peace which God supplies is always just a call away. God wants us to pray. He invites us to pray. He he calls us, he compels us, he commands us and asks us to bring our fears and concerns to him. Illustration. There was an extremely disturbing situation a few weeks ago. It's so disturbing that I cannot remember what it was. But nevertheless, it was very heavy on my heart. I was able to go to sleep, but then I woke up at 3 a.m. tossing and turning mind racing, thinking about whatever the situation was. I don't remember. It was three, four weeks ago. I felt as though I should get up and pray. So I did. Now it happened a week later, and I felt as though I should get up and pray, and I didn't. So instead, I just laid there tossing and turning for another two hours and finally fell back to sleep around 5 a.m. But in this particular time, I did. I, I got up. I walked down the hallway to my office Went inside my office, believe it or not, I found space, closed the door, knelt by my office chair, and I prayed. And I prayed until I had peace. And then after that, I got back up, walked back down the hallway, got back into bed, laid my head down on the pillow, and fell right to sleep. And I slept really well for the next few hours, so it was time to wake up. It is possible for David's testimony in verse 5 to be your testimony, even in the middle of troublesome circumstances. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's what happens. He says, I'm not afraid, even though there's ten thousand people that have surrounded my little camp of soldiers. I will not be afraid. I will lay down and sleep. If you are not sleeping, there's probably something you need to be praying about. If you can't sleep, there's probably something you need to pray about. I don't know what it is. If you want to talk about it, I might be able to help you point out what that thing, what that thing probably is that you need to be praying about that's preventing you from sleeping. But it is not unspiritual to say, I need sleep. When I was in college, our dean of students would often tell us, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. It's hard to be godly and sanctified when you are running on five hours of sleep. Uh, Brain scientists tell us that if you are on five hours of sleep, your brain is as impaired as if you were drunk. Your reaction speed, all those things, it is, it is of the same level and quality. Your memory, your reactions, your thinking, your clarity is all the same level with five hours of sleep as if you were drunk. Now, a lot of arrogant people say, no, 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 I function well on little sleep. That's not true. What is true is that you only function on little sleep, and you could be doing much better if you had a healthier amount of sleep in the seven to eight hour range, and your family and coworkers and friends would, would really appreciate it, actually, if, if you were functioning as on a healthier level of sleep. Now, if you think this is Meddling or unspiritual, I will say to you that the word of God says in Psalm 127, 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, I'm not talking about the lazy person. That's a whole different conversation. The one who is tossing and turning on his bed for 12, 16, 18 hours. You just lay around and don't do anything. You don't hold down a job. You're just like, you know, working really hard, playing your 
video games or whatever kids are playing these days. Like you, you roll out of bed, maybe roll out of bed to play some games and you go back to sleep for another eight hours and you do that again. And that's not healthy, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the one who is in the middle of affliction, unable to sleep because of that. I'm saying cry out to God. He will help you. He has offered peace to you and he wants you to have sleep and rest. It is not unspiritual or unbiblical to cry out for that. Now, there's more. God not only provides momentary physical rest through the precious gift of sleep, but he also provides spiritual rest and ultimately eternal rest in his presence. This is described for us in Hebrews chapter 4, which says, Therefore, since a promise remaining of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, for the word which they heard did not profit them, nor being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There is debate among the systems of theology what this rest is referring to. Is this rest referring to salvation, or is this rest referring to the deeper life? Is this referring to some sort of higher spirituality, or is this referring to Christianity? And I'm telling you today, as I told my Sunday school class 15 years ago, this is talking about Christianity. If you are saved, this rest is yours. So uh, it says, verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. So the ones who are not in Christ do not have the rest, and those who are in Christ do have this rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in the latter place, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Therefore, uh, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Again, this is for the people of God, not a, a second class of the people of God, but rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Oops, my notes just turned white. There, it's back. It's terrifying when you touch your screen and it just disappears. Um, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let anyone fall according, lest anyone fall according to that same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, how do you know if you're saved or not? Because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about entering into the rest. You're like, oh, I want to know if I enter the rest or not. Well, the word of God is what exposes It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can cut between the bone and the marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's the difference between the one who's saved and the one who's lost. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He goes on. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's where your rest comes from. This eternal high priest, Jesus, the Son of God who has passed through the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is, by the way, not just the Son of God, he is also a true human, and so he understands your weakness, and so he calls to you to come boldly before his throne of grace. And and so you do, because you know he understands. You're not facing a harsh, cruel taskmaster or a harsh judge, but you are facing one who understands. I've been talking to a lot of people lately about their problems, and um, someone was like, oh, don't judge me. I'm like, I'm not going to judge you. Like, the stuff I just told you, why would I be judging you if I just told you what I told you? It's okay. It's okay to not be 
okay. It's okay to have these problems. Jesus is a merciful and sympathetic high priest. And that's, when we get a hold of that, that's where our rest comes. Recognizing that we have a Savior who calls us to come to him. And he will not turn us away if we do. If you have entered his spiritual rest, you can rest assured that you will enter his eternal rest. And out of all of that flows physical rest. Because it puts your mind at ease. And when you're praying, like that 3 a.m. wake up, when the Lord is like, hey, it's time to wake up. I need to talk to you. And you decide whether you're going to do it or not. And then you do do it. And you, you go and you pray. And then you're talking about these very things. And you say, Lord, it's me your son, Andy, and I have these problems and I can't fix them. I don't have a solution to them, but you do. And you've told me to bring them to you. You've told me that you will not turn me away if I bring my problems to you. So I'm confessing these problems to you that have no human solution. Please help me. Through that process, that's where peace comes. That's where physical rest comes too. I'm not saying it's wrong to take a sleeping pill, but a sleeping pill short circuits that whole process. And so you might wake up feeling more tired than when you went to bed because you didn't deal with the spiritual problem. Moving forward, verse 7 and 8. God is my rescue. God is my deliverance. Uh, verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all of my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all of my enemies on the cheekbone. You've hit them in the face. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Have you ever had a broken tooth? I haven't, but like I've bitten into some ice cream and my teeth are sensitive and that doesn't feel good. And I can imagine having a broken tooth is horrible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. (coughs) Do you have confidence to pray these words to God? Even when you're... Deliverance and rescue seems far off. <clears throat> when it hasn't happened yet, <clears throat> it says, you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. David's saying those words while his enemy, his own son, is still on the loose. Do you have confidence to say these words to God about himself, his character, even though your situation hasn't fixed yet. So let me speak for a moment to you who suffer. You who suffer, and I mean truly suffer, find comfort in turning over your enemies to the vengeance of God. It is necessary to say here that I am saying This is for those who truly suffer. Not just for those who are extremely disappointed that your husband took you to Five Guys instead of Morton's for his birthday dinner. That is not suffering. Notice what I said. He took you to Five Guys instead of Morton's for his birthday dinner. And you're very upset about that and you think that you're suffering. You're you're not. You're also not suffering because he took you to the Poconos for vacation instead of the Bora Bora. That's not suffering. The world of social media is saturated with narcissists who have an extremely elevated sense of entitlement and have convinced themselves that they are worthy of some uh, princess treatment because they have a pulse and a large social media following. These fans, these adoring fans online, do not know the real them. They do not know the horrendous personality that is hiding behind the makeup and artificially enhanced beauty. Yet the package deal comes with an ego that thinks they are suffering, truly suffering, if they have ever once been told no. When we accept this modern notion of mistreatment, we're getting a small ice cream instead of a large ice cream is tantamount to domestic violence or not being able to find an item that you've previously run out of is called a form of abuse called weaponized incompetence. 
Okay, you ran out of toilet paper. Your husband comes down the hall and says, hey, I can't find any toilet paper. And you're like, you have weaponized incompetence against me. Okay, this stuff happens in our world today. When we give a compassionate ear to sheer nonsense, we minimize real sufferings of those who actually face acts of violence and genuine fits of rage over the mildest of disagreements. This is not directed at any situation that um, my dishwasher broke last night. This is not about that. I wrote this on Friday. But when a husband calmly asks his wife to go ahead and put her dirty dishes in the dishwasher, and that is met with accusations of mistreatment or abuse, we minimize the suffering of the one who gets punched or slapped or threatened when they have left a few cups on the counter after a busy day. So to you who truly suffer, do you have confidence to cry out to God as your rescuer and deliverer, even when there is no earthly sign of rescue? You can have confidence to cry out to God as your deliverer and to also know that God may use physical means to rescue you. When a husband or wife threatens their spouse with a knife, it is possible that the Lord may directly intervene and cause a sudden brain hemorrhage or pressing the off button on their heart and causing their heart to stop beating like he did to Nabal on behalf of Abigail who endured the abuse of her abusive and chronically angry husband whose name literally means fool. Yes, that happens sometimes. But if God God does not intervene using the forces of nature or some sort of biological mechanism, he has also ordained the rightful exercise of good government to protect the innocent by physically putting a stop to or neutralizing the threat. It is right and good to call for help when attacked. It is wrong not to call for help. Because when you do not call for help, you are enabling the abuse to go on. You are enabling the violent accuser to harm more people, including the rest of your family. In the Old Testament, my biblical support for this is in the Old Testament, the rape victim who doesn't cry out for help is regarded as complicit in the crime. So by clear inference, one who doesn't cry out for help from Other acts of violence is enabling that act of violence to go on. You have a duty to report, not just pastors. Pastors have a legal mandate to report crimes, but you have a duty before God to report things. Now, I'm not saying, oh, he got me a small ice cream instead of a large. I'm being mistreated. I've already covered that, okay? If you are afraid to go to the authorities because there will be severe retaliation, not just a disappointed frown, but like actually acts of violence, you can talk to me and I will go with you. It won't be the first time and it certainly won't be the last. God is your rescue and he often uses humans to rescue his precious children from physical harm. Don't think that it is unspiritual to take such steps to protect you and your children from physical harm. Hopefully this doesn't apply to any of you, but... It is being recorded. We'll go up online as it is being live streamed right now. Not only are these things, which I believe are abundantly clear from the text based on the fact of David versus Absalom, physical violence within the home, but God is our rescuer from sin and from hell and from the wrath of God. And if you don't know that, if you haven't experienced that, Let me offer that to you today, that you can be rescued. You can claim with David in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, he's the one who gives it out. And he wants to give that to you if you don't have it. He loves to save sinners. He, He sent his own son to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to die on the cross on behalf of ungodly people like you and like me. And then his son holds his arms wide open after dying on the cross and rising from the dead on the third day. And he says, come to me, all who are weary laden, all who are tired, you who are broke, you have no money, you have come to me, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You got to be hungry, you got to be tired, you got to be broke. But once you fit, fit those things, once you are a sinner and you recognize that, then you are qualified for this salvation to cry out to him, to find your salvation, to find your rescue, your deliverance, your rest in Jesus Christ, who is a faithful Savior, who has called out to you to come to him. Come to him by faith. Cry out to him. Say, Jesus, save me. And he will. He will not turn you away. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words from David as he was facing the violent acts of his rebellious son who was trying to overthrow his kingdom. I pray that you would encourage your people, strengthen your church with these words. I pray for the help of your spirit to apply them as they need to be applied. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this book of the Bible, this book of Psalms. I pray that you would continue to instruct us and teach us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.